Good morning. It's good to be gathered with you all this morning. Please turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1. Continue in uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will row them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the reading of God's Word. May it be blessed in our hearing. Pray with me. O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come before you this morning on this Lord's Day. We come to your Word, and we come to hear you speak. Pray that you would, through your Spirit, preach a better sermon. Pray that you would build us up, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us understanding, that we would perceive and see what you would have us to see in your word. Pray this in the name of your Son, who is glorious and enthroned on high. Amen. I, I love movies. I've watched a lot of movies. I've uh, watched some of my favorites over and over and over again. I also really like baseball. And uh, I know the games are long and can maybe be a little bit boring, but uh, I've sort of fallen in love with baseball because there's a natural story element to the game. There's a story with the history. There's a story within each game, each player. So baseball movies and baseball, they go very well together, and there's, there's plenty of them out there. Um, but maybe you're familiar with the movie The Rookie, with, uh, um, about a, it's a true story of a, uh, a high school teacher in Texas who had a wicked fast fastball, and late in life he was able to jump into the major leagues. But the, story tells the, story, uh, the movie tells the story of his life, and so it starts out when he's uh, a kid, he's a teenager, and he's a military kid, so he's moving around a lot, and no place really feels like home. And so they move to Texas. They move to West Texas. And as they're driving through the uh, somewhat desert landscape, he's noticing the oil rigs, not the giant big ones, but the, the smaller ones with the, the big arm, like a hammer that goes up and down. And he's saying, Dad, what are those? Uh, and because uh, he's never seen him before. And his dad just says, uh, when those things are going up and down, times are good. 
When those things aren't moving, times are bad. In Hebrews here, in the last half of this chapter, Christ is described as an enthroned king. The Son is enthroned on high. When the Son is enthroned, times are good. If the Son is not on the throne, times are not good. But here's the thing. He is always on the throne. So times, times are good. That's why Christmas is such a celebratory time. Last week in the previous verses, I talked about how Jesus is greater than the angels. And the author here is um, contrasting the Son with the angels. He's still kind of unpacking that point. But in this second half of the chapter, uh, yes, he's saying that Jesus is greater than the angels, but I'm not going to preach that again. What he's now focusing on is the Son, and he's just saying this. The Son is great. He's not just greater than the angels. He is great. What I want us to see and how he's describing the greatness is to answer the question, how do we know he's great? How is, the, how is this greatness being described? And it's being described in three ways. The Son is enthroned, He's eternal, and He's invincible. Now I know, it's a, throwing you for a little bit of a loop, those don't start with the same letters, but I'm sure you'll be able to follow along. <clears throat> he is enthroned. We're going to let the text speak for itself about the greatness of Christ. Looking at verses 8 and following, you notice there's... Uh, Again, he has more quotations from the Old Testament, but these quotations are a little bit different than the ones that we saw last week. Uh, first of all, they're, uh, they're longer. So Jesus is greater than the angels. We get that point. These are longer quotes. Uh, but the Son is being contrasted. So first, uh, in those pre- last week, it was more about things uh, about the angels that they need to worship, uh, that they serve Him as ministers, with flames of fire, but now it's just a focus on the Son and describing Him. So uh, the quotes are not just an argument where it's, quote, here's the point, quote, here's a point, etc., moving on. Now there's a little bit, there's something different. Now he's not really making an argument with the language. He's now just making what Scripture says plain. He's just letting the Old Testament speak about the Son. And to make this point, he goes to no better place than the Psalms. Each of these quotes from verses 8 through 13, each of these quotes is from the Psalms, because the Psalms are used to heap praise upon God. So the Son is being worshipped as a king. Uh, If we think about prayer and praise, they go hand in hand. Um, In in prayer, we, we, we go to God and we recognize who He is, and we submit ourselves to Him, and we give Him thanks for everything, we ask for things. But also, uh, I have a question as we think about the Psalms here, uh, as the, the author of Hebrews takes us to the Psalms. I also want us to think about prayer. Do you praise God in your prayers? Or do you just ask for things? Right. The author of Hebrews here is quoting Psalms, which are songs, but they're also just 150 prayers. You could really think of them that way. And he's heaping praise upon the Son. So this is prayer, even as it's quotation, but it's also praise, uh, recognizing the Son for who He is, praising God for who He is in His character. Uh, in our prayers, uh, we, can, we can model them after the Psalms, and we can, uh, we can praise God even as we 
would get around to making supplication and asking for things, but we can even just go to pray, a prayer in God and say, God, this is who you are, and I praise you in my prayers, as the psalmist prays you. As the author of Hebrews wants to praise the Son and present the Son as great, he knows exactly where he needs to go to praise the Son of God. He goes to the Psalms, but he goes more specifically with his first quote in verse 8 and verse 9. He goes to Psalm 45, which is a royal psalm. It's a psalm about a king. If you read the whole psalm, it's uh, more evident. But it's actually even more than that. It's a royal psalm about a royal wedding. So it's about a king who is being praised as he takes a bride. So in the occasion of this royal wedding, the king is described in great and glorious terms. Uh, these would have been sung at perhaps coronations for Israel's kings, as um, maybe, maybe David was in view here, or Solomon, or another great king. So the author of Hebrews chooses these verses uh, because he wants to challenge and counter a big question that's presented against Jesus. Is he really God? We discussed this last week. Uh, we looked at verses about the Son being the Son, but now we see even more language where the Son is referred to as God Himself. As the royal psalm says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, as the Son is being referred to as God Himself, we make sense of this with the Trinity, as we discussed last week with um, talking about the personal properties of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I won't repeat that, but we also make sense of this uh, by seeing this in redemptive history. Psalm 45 was written in the Old Testament. It was written in the time of the kings as they were being crowned and praise was given to the kings as the kings represented God. And we, uh, in verse, um, verse 5 last week, there was the quote from, Psalm, uh, for, from 2 Samuel 2, 7, or from 2 Samuel 7. Uh, which is actually where God makes a covenant with David and just says, I will put, a, put your son on the throne forever. And it's a text that points to Christ. Um, in a similar way, Psalm 45 is used to praise the kings, but also there's a sense in which it's a fulfillment of Second Samuel 7. So it ties in nicely with verse 5 as uh, the author of Hebrews is moving forward with these quotations. So Psalm 45 was written during a certain time, at a certain place, for a certain occasion, by a certain person, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what's happening in redemptive history. At a certain time, God is making certain things known. And what He's making known was that there's going to be a king, and you're going to want to worship this king. And in Psalm 45 is an expression of that worship. But He's not just a man, and He's not just an earthly king. Yes, He'll take a bride for Himself, but uh, he's, he's more than you could realize. So the sons of Korah wrote this song to worship God on the great occasion of a royal wedding, and it served its purpose for the Holy Spirit then, but it also has a purpose to serve for us now as it gives us language. This psalm stirred up in the people of God a love for their king and a desire to worship God who is the true king. And what it should stir up in us as a longing for us to see and worship that king. So these verses describe the king, and the verses that, the, psalm, that uh, the author of Hebrews quotes here are just a snippet of that psalm. And here he wants to talk about uh, not just an earthly king, but somebody who is beyond an earthly king. So he talks about his kingdom, his scepter, his character, his, even his conversation. 
so he, he describes his kingdom, the throne. Your throne is forever. A throne and a kingdom go hand in hand. The scepter is a symbol of this kingdom. His throne is a throne that is forever. And this is doing my Bible reading plan. I was in Revelation 4 earlier this week and couldn't help but uh, see the coincidence of uh, this text in preparation and reading that in uh, devotions. And in Revelation 4, the throne room of God is described. The ground is like glass, like crystal in front of the throne. There's 24 elders around it. There's torches. There's four living beasts who are angels. There's a rainbow. There's all these colors. It is absolutely glorious uh, description in Revelation, in Revelation 4. And this is the throne. And the throne is representative of the kingdom as a whole. If the throne is forever, the kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And the scepter, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. It's a symbol of power. As you think of Esther, in the book of Esther, as she goes before uh, her husband, the king, Ahasuerus, and if he dips his scepter, she is welcome into his presence. The scepter is a great symbol of power, but this scepter is the scepter of uprightness, of righteousness. And then the character of this king. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This king is a good king, not just a great king. He's a good king. What, what do you love and what do you hate? That might tell somebody more about you uh, than anything else. Perhaps you, you love everyone and you hate no one. I think that would be a lack of discernment. Or you love no one and you hate everyone. That would be, at the very least, a lack of humility. Uh, growth in Christ-likeness means learning to love more and more that which Christ loves. And as he is described here in Hebrews 1.9, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. He's a good and great king, a king whose character uh, is preeminent. So what Christ loves and what he hates more and more is that which we want to love and hate more and more. We don't want to get comfortable with uh, things that he would hate. I finally recently got around to cleaning our shower in our bathroom, and it was uh, had a lot of that algae, pinkish mold, mildew, whatever you want to call it, in different places. Uh, and it's I can't see very well when I take my glasses off, take a shower. I'm pretty blind, and so I don't notice it as much, but uh, it was time to uh, get into deep cleaning it. Uh, so, I, you, you know when you clean it, and wow, it looks good. Uh, it's all white. It's clean. Uh, and then, you know, it, it inevitably grows uh, over time. And uh, you notice a little bit in the corner on the edges, uh, but I don't see very well, so that's my excuse. Uh, and you get used to it a little bit, and you're like, ah, it's just a little bit. I'll get around to cleaning it. And that little bit contributes to more and more, and it, and it, it just grows. The mold and the algae grows. And before you know it, it's like, this is... This really needs to be cleaned, uh, but I don't have time for this right now, so I'll do it on the weekend when I don't want to do it. Uh, we can get, get used to icky things. We just get used to it. We live with it. Uh, and so it is with some of the things that Christ would hate that we might get comfortable with in our lives. Uh, perhaps we do a good job of putting some effort in there, uh, which is obviously not enough, uh, but 
something could be maybe put in its place, but if it has, if it has a place within the room, it has a chance to grow its presence rather than be something that needs to be removed entirely. Christ loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. Finally, I want to note you to note uh, this king's conversation. Uh, God talks to himself, you could say, as uh, verse 8, it says, but of the son he says. The he that the author is pointing us to is that God is speaking in his word. He says of the son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So God is talking to himself. How can this be? Why would God talk to himself? Well, this is the way Jesus talked when he was on earth, right? He said, I go to my father and your father, to my God and your God. He didn't say our God, as he would contrast his distinct relationship with the father versus his disciples. Uh, When God is described on his throne in the Old Testament, it's often uh, only with things around him that are described. But here, it's uh, these, these things are described and uh, the Son is described as one who is enthroned and is distinct from uh, God and yet is God Himself. And so, uh, as, as God is described in the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 6, uh, Exodus 24, uh, and uh, a number of other passages, He's really never described in Himself because no man can see God. Uh, but his, in Isaiah 6, His robe is described because he's that glorious. In Exodus 24, the ground on which his feet rest is described because the elders and Moses and Aaron can't even lift their eyes to look upon him. God is great and glorious, but be, uh, as, as the sun has come and the sun is enthroned, he has made God known. And so no one has ever seen God, as John says in 1.18. But we have seen the sun. And here's the Son described. He has made Him known. Uh, and it's not just a reality that Christ is enthroned, it's also a reality that we can see Him. Uh, and we, we cannot see the Father, but we can see the Son. And so how do we respond to this enthroned King? What would our response be? Uh, what does He say? My kingdom is not of this world. Which is confusing for people to understand. Uh, maybe just spiritualizes everything. So what do we do about responding to the King and His kingdom? What is this call? Is this call to build it? No. To advance it? Also no. Uh, what does he say? Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. We seek the kingdom. We seek the kingdom, for the kingdom is within you. That is the response that the Son would call to us as he is an enthroned king. He says, seek the kingdom. Seek me. Seek my righteousness. And so he's not just an enthroned king, Uh, Over his kingdom, he is an eternal king of an eternal kingdom. So what does eternal mean? Well, I I defined that last week. It lasts forever, but what what does it mean? How do we use the word eternal? What do we describe as eternal? Would it be the same for me to say, you, O God, are continuous or continual or God, you are are perpetual? Uh, They don't quite capture the sense that we want with eternal. God created time. He's above and beyond it. God is not like us. That is a good thing. Uh, To make this point, the author gives us these quotes. And in contrast to verses 5 and 7, where he quotes from the Psalms, he quotes from 2 Samuel, and he quotes from uh, Deuteronomy 32, 
So he's quoting from the Pentateuch, he's quoting from the historical books, he's quoting from the Psalms that would encapsulate the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, it's really to say with a sample, the whole Old Testament speaks of this, of the Son. Uh, here in verses 8 through 13, he quotes from three different Psalms. So he says, the whole Old Testament speaks of Christ, but now let me just look at one book and look at three different Psalms in that book. And so these quotes all point that Christ is testified to in the Scriptures and in the Psalms. And now he wants to zoom in on the song and let us see glorious things that are communicated. So he selects quotes from Psalm 45, which I just talked about, and Psalm 102, and Psalm 110. Psalm 102, verses 26 and 28 are what are quoted in verses 10 through 12. And Psalm 102 is a, a longer song, and it captures the eternality of God. It captures that God is eternal in a grand, grand way. And so uh, I had the privilege this week of uh, attending a Christmas party with our owls, our uh, oldest, wisest, liveliest seniors. Uh, they were wanting to check my ID if I could uh, get into the party. <clears throat> uh, so it was my privilege to be with them, to have conversation with them, have a meal with, with you many of you. Uh, and the conversation was inevitably around uh, good things, around grandkids and hobbies and homes, homes that were your homes now and homes that were your homes in the past, special places. Uh, but also the conversation turned inevitably to aches and pains, diagnoses, and what I heard was the true necessity of retirement so that you have time to go to see all the doctors you need to see. Uh, and a few people said, look what you have to look forward to. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but it was, it was good. It was good conversation. Uh, I was glad to be there. Uh, but I, as I prepared for this sermon, I couldn't help but think the conversation went, it went towards very human things, things we love and things we have to deal with. Uh, but it, the conversation couldn't help but speak of the fact that we are not eternal. God is, but we are not. Uh, it says here that uh, the heavens are his work. He made the heavens, yet they will perish. But you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So we may be made in the image of God, uh, so we reflect him in knowledge and righteousness and holiness uh, as he renews us, and yet... The original creation has been marred and broken, uh, and there is uh, so much about God that is utter, utterly unlike us. Maybe you've heard of the distinction between communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. His communicable attributes would be that God knows things and we know things, that uh, God is love and we love as He makes it possible. He is holy and we also are holy, and yet there are incommunicable attributes. He, God doesn't just know things. He knows everything. Uh, we are present in one place. He is present everywhere. Uh, we are immortal. Our souls will continue on forever, uh, but we are not eternal. Uh, the difference between immortality is we were created, and now we were created to live forever uh, in one place or another, but we are not eternal. God has existed not just forever, but he created 
whatever forever is. And so because God is eternal, He never ages, He never gets bored. We age, and how soon does it take the oldest of us or the, even the youngest of us to get bored? Uh, God never gets bored. He is forever young. I think that's why He loves His creation. He loves to see the sun come up again and again. He loves to see the seasons in certain parts of the world. I guess we don't have all the seasons in all the parts of the world. Uh, that is why He can renew our youth like the eagle. We, we wear out like an old t-shirt, and He is overflowing with new life. He is the Lord, and He is the giver of life. <clears throat> and that's how He makes us alive in Him. He never ages because He is the same, and His years have no end. So I talked about the theme of the book of Hebrews is the temptation to turn back. The, the original audience was tempted to turn back to the old covenant, the old way of doing things. Uh, they were saying, why can't we just have a king and priests and sacrifices and prophets and live happily ever after? Well, the, if God is the same, they have an argument. He's the same. He hasn't changed. Let's just stick with the old ways. Uh, he's the same because He's eternal. He's unchanging. And yet, He's giving us a little bit more knowledge of Himself as He has worked through redemptive history and brought forth redemption, and He's trying to show us a little bit more of Himself. So to, to desire to stay in the Old Covenant is like desiring to just hang out with Peter Pan's shadow rather than Peter Pan himself. The, the person, the substance is so much greater than a shadow, and as great and glorious as the Old Covenant was, as the Old Testament is, and is still useful, it's not... It's a shadow. It's a type. It's, it's something pointing to a greater reality. And the author of Hebrews is saying, here's the quotes. Here's the Old Testament. The greater reality is here. The Son has come, and He speaks to you. <clears throat> so don't desire to hang out with His shadow. Desire to be in His presence and to worship Him directly without mediation of priests or prophets. For He makes all His people priests, and He Himself is the only prophet that is now necessary as He speaks directly. And so he is enthroned. He is eternal. He is a great king. He is the son. Finally, he is invincible. So the last quote is from verse 13. It's taken from Psalm 110. Now, I did not know most of these quotes in this chapter as I had to do some digging, which is fun to be able to look, where did this quote come from and explore and learn more about God's word? But I did know two. I knew the first quote in verse 5 was from Psalm 2. And I knew this last quote was from Psalm 110, uh, as those are psalms I know, and I would encourage you to also know, and if you did know, that's, that's a good thing to be able to recognize that Psalm 110 uh, is, is, a great, is one of the great messianic psalms, as it uh, is going to be quoted in the rest of the book of Hebrews about four times. The author of Hebrews goes to Psalm 110 to make several points, as uh, he's got a number of things to say. And so he's, he makes different points, and the point he's making here in Psalm 110 is about the invincibility of the sun. The sun is invincible. As a king would go out to conquer, uh, the sun is as one who not just conquers, but he cannot be defeated. Uh, so in this quote from Psalm 110, which is uh, longer than just this one little snippet, uh, there's some things that are being said, and there's some things that are not being said. First, I want us to look at what is uh, being said. <clears throat> so he says, I, until I make your enemies a footstool for you. 
what is being said is that the son will conquer. He will not be defeated. He, the rest of the psalm speaks of ruling over enemies, shattering kings, executing judgment. Uh, but he also has, uh, has more to say than just that, that uh, it is about the Lord who sits at the right hand, as he was referenced in verse 3, uh, as Pastor Tim covered that two weeks ago, that he's sitting at the right hand. So how do we know he's sitting at the right hand? We know he's ascended, but how do we know he's at the right hand of the Father? Well, Psalm 110 speaks of that reality. So as Jesus talked about that about himself, he was really echoing what he knew to be true in Psalm 110 and similar passages. The right hand is a place of power and honor and prestige, and that's where the Son is. Uh, and God, God subjects His enemies under Him. He subjects uh, the Son's enemies under Him. And so the Son isn't just God. He's with the Father. Uh, and together, as the one triune God, they will conquer all of His enemies. It also said there's something that's not being said. The first, what's not being said is that this isn't the full quote of even just one verse. Uh, he says, sit at my right hand until, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And really, I think what he's saying is, here's a quote from the verse 1. Now just fill in the blanks with all, all the rest of the verse, all the rest of the chapter as you might know it. Uh, but he skipped the first little line if you go back to Psalm 110. And the first line is this, uh, the Lord said to my Lord which is similar to what was being said in verse 8 with Psalm 102. God is again speaking to himself. And this was understood. Uh, people knew David had written this, and they thought David was maybe um, uh, saying something here about himself or about a future king. They were always looking for an earthly uh, understanding of what these verses meant. So as, as uh, David would be saying this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so the Lord, in all caps in this Old Testament passage, would be Yahweh speaking to the Lord in lowercase uh, and having something, something to say about subjecting the enemies of a king. But uh, Jesus goes directly to this verse in the Gospel of Mark as he refutes the Pharisees uh, who disputed his claims to be the Son of God. And he said, how can David refer to his own son as Lord? All right, is he, if David's the father in the long line of this king, how is he referring to his own son as Lord? Well, it's because this son is great David's greater son. He is the Lord himself. And so it's, it's God, in a sense, speaking to himself. It's the father who is Lord speaking to the son who is Lord. And it's the father who raises up his son and has seated his son uh, and has put him in a place to conquer all his enemies. And so he is enthroned. He's also ministered to by his servants and he is greater than they. He's greater than, he's greater than even David. And so as the, as the author of Hebrews lays out these, these quotes, he's just laying out the greatness of the Son. And so he is greater than the angels, but he's not just greater than the angels. The angels minister to him. Uh, and the angels aren't just ministering to him. They're ministering to others as well. So what about you? Where do you fit in? Well, I would say that you're not a spectator here to just listen and nod your head and go, hmm. But you're a participant in this text. Look at the final verse in verse 14. For the sake, they are, are they not ministering servants, the angels, ministering servants sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? They serve Christ, but they also serve you. There is more than one son in this passage. There's a focus on the son, 
But there are many sons. For what is the, what is the nature of being a son, particularly in uh, the t- context of the Bible? Sons inherit things. And there's an inheritance uh, for those, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. That is your inheritance. Sons inherit. And that's why we hear so much about sons in Scripture. You inherit salvation uh, as a son of the living God. So salvation is from sin. So it's not just salvation from something, but it's also salvation to something. Salvation from sin, but there's also an inheritance to salvation and life in Christ. And so through His death, we inherit salvation. And the Son who is enthroned and eternal and invincible is the Son whom the Father says, look at Him. See Him with the eyes of faith. See my mercy, which is yours. See my mercy in my Son. See it. Hear it. Take it. Taste it. And live. This is your inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, we come before You. We give You thanks for Your Word. We praise You, O God, for You have enthroned Your Son on high. We praise You that You are eternal. You are forever young. Your years have no end. You are the same. You don't change and You have not changed and You will not change. We also praise You that You are invincible. Who could oppose You as You fight the battles for Your people? You love uprightness. You hate wickedness. So that which is wicked cannot stand in Your presence. We worship You, O Father. And we pray that You would continue to minister to us through Your Word and Your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, Amen.